Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I'm your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. Join our mission and help change the conversation because we are all stronger together. Good Dog is on a mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them through education and advocacy. The Good Dog Pod provides dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I am so excited. We have Susan Patterson, a Labrador retriever breeder of note. We have Judy Stella, who is the head of standards and research here at Good Dog, and we have Kat Matlub, who is the head of partnerships and legal. And we are going to talk about the United States of America's number one registered, most popular breed, which is the Labrador Retriever. And I'm very excited about this. We're also going to talk a little bit about Good Dog's standards and their policies regarding dilute Labradors or dilute retrievers, more accurately. So welcome, everybody. Susan, I'm going to start with you. Welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background with Labrador Retrievers? Thank you, Laura. I'm really pleased. I'm Susan Patterson, and I have been breeding under the name of Sunwick Labrador Retrievers since the late 80s. I fell in love with the Labrador Retriever because I had children, and having children meant that I needed a dog that got along with them because I was going to be super involved. also have a husband who hunts which meant that I could go do the shows and he could go do the hunting, which was fabulous. I have a great belief that being in the dog world means you need to be involved. So I started getting involved in clubs, and I have been fortunate to be often on the board of the Labrador Retriever Club of the Potomac. I have been on the board of the Labrador Retriever Club of Greater Boston, where I live now. And I've also participated on the board of the Atlanta Kennel Club, where I used to live, because the all-breed clubs as well as the breed-specific clubs are really important to promoting people's involvement with dogs, regardless of what breed. So it's been just a blast. I am actually working on my very first champion master hunter. That would be champion Sunwick's Eclair. She currently has her senior hunter, and we are two legs short of her master hunter. So I do believe that a Labrador is a triple-purpose dog, the fourth purpose being the best family pet ever. But like any breed, the Labrador is not specifically created equal. Different dogs have different drive, different type, etc. But there is still just one breed standard that we all should be meeting. And that, as someone who judges sweepstakes, is head, coat, and tail. You need to be able to look at a Labrador and know it is a Labrador. So my involvement has been pretty immersive. I've been fortunate to have a job that has allowed me to travel all over the world. So I have been at shows in Iceland and Italy and Norway, as well as the U.S., 
and have made friends through all my dogs that have lasted for years and years. Dogs have been such a great conduit. I agree with you. I just think that your description is very similar to mine, right? Like that's <laughs> It is. I think that we develop so much from our dogs and I really want you to kind of riff a little bit if you would please because some of our listeners are going to be people looking maybe to acquire a Labrador Retriever. So when you talk about the one standard and many styles, and mostly we're talking there about the drive levels, can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think it helps people understand that they can have a Labrador Retriever that's a wonderful family companion that can go hunting And this one might be a little more, and this one might be a little bit less. And what do you look for to acquire that? Sure. Well, I think what is really important, and actually it's kind of what connected me into Good Dog, is the Avid Dog Protocol for Testing. I have been actually running temperament testing on my dog for probably 20 years now. Mm -hmm. I choose everybody's puppies for them based on what I know about them, how I get to know them, how they react with my dogs and my puppies. And so I truly really get to know the people so I know which dog in the litter is the right dog for them based on my testing of drive, fitability, and their ability to forgive when we make mistakes. There's a lot of different things that go into that. So Based on that, it's just like children in a family. You know, you can have a family of four children and every single child is different. Despite the fact they come from the same parents, the dogs are the very same. So I tell people who come to me for a puppy that I'm really not here to sell them a puppy. I'm here to make sure that they get the right one. And my advice to them is always to find a breeder who is going to be there for them for the next 12 to 15 years, and someone whose interests align with theirs and who can work with them with health and with temperament. So when you pick a dog and you work with a breeder to pick a dog, your involvement in those puppies' lives through visits and through literally helping with socialization makes a big difference. So you can have a dog who is what you and I, Laura, would call super drivey, which means that they need a job. They are not happy unless they're doing something. And then you have their brother, who is what I call the couch potato. His sole goal in life is to sit in your lap and stare in your eyes and adore you. Mm -hmm. And there is such a big difference. And the ability to see that is really critical for families getting a dog, as well as for performance people getting dogs. Correct. So that is super critical. And of course, with that goes correct structure. I have leaned for years on Pat Hastings, puppy books, etc. It has been so important to make sure that a dog does not break down, who's going to be in the field or be doing their job. That is just very important. Well, and I think too, and I'm sure that you agree with this, but I talk about this a lot the importance of even just your couch potato dog still has to have proper structure. Absolutely. So a dog that is built correctly is going to jump on the couch easier. I mean, it's really that specific. 
And so one of the things I think people maybe sometimes don't make the connection is that dogs that are bred intentionally, show dogs, working dogs, what have you, dogs that are bred to be functionally fit have a specific structure for a specific reason that makes them hold up long-term. Thoughts? Correct. That's absolutely correct. And that, I think, leads you into, again, one of the good dog things that really has impressed me is their level of screening for breeders who do appropriate health tests. While we recognize that because we're dealing with living beings, there will always be the opportunity for there to be a potential problem. The ability to reduce that incidence through proper health testing matters. So not breeding dogs who have failed their hips or who are structurally incompatible is really important because a dog has such a big heart that their heart will cause them to overcome their structural issues to their own physical detriment. Yes. And that is really hard. I mean, my dogs will do anything for me. And yet, you know, it's like an old dog who wants to, wants to retrieve. And so I have to make short retrieves because I know even though she would do the long retrieve, I might end up swimming in after her. So structure is really important. And I look at puppies from the time they're six weeks old. I put them on the table. I do it again at seven. I do it again at eight. And I do it in front of a mirror. I want to see correct hips and shoulder placement. I want to have angulation. I want to have thigh. I want to have reach of neck, which is going to allow me to pick up a dumbbell. If it's a performance dog, pick up a bird. If it's a hunting dog. So the structure is really important, and we do have the tools as breeders to learn this. And I think learning it is really important. So using the educational components of various people like Chris Zink and Pat Hastings, as I said before, has been really helpful to me over the years. I go to every seminar I can. Right. And I think that's one of the things I particularly am drawn to about what Good Dog is providing which is that opportunity for everyone who is a breeder to learn about structure. It is. I talk about, it's what you were just saying. You can't see me. I'm nodding my head vigorously, right? Because (laughs) that is exactly what I preach. And I think that everyone has the ability to learn and understand. And you don't have to have a best in show dog in order to have a dog that's built correctly. And I think that's so important for people to understand. It is very important. And I think that people discount that. And getting back to puppy people again, I think one of the things that's hardest is every puppy is so cute. Mm -hmm. And so as I tell people, the cuteness factor, we got to take that away. So I'm going to take the pressure off of them by picking for them. It doesn't mean that only one puppy is going to be a possibility. It means there may be two or three And we'll kind of refine what they're looking for. But getting back to Good Dog, I will say that a couple of years ago, when I was first looking at Good Dog and people were saying, well, why aren't you a Good Dog member? And I saw their stance, Dilute Labrador Retrievers is what they called it at the time when it's truly a Dilute Retriever. I kind of chuckled. Actually, I laughed out loud. And said, you know, they don't know what they don't know. And I was very disappointed because I saw what they were trying to do. But I also saw that they did not know very much about the dog world. So 
there's a few people who are quite surprised to see me involved with them now, but they have taken on this project and their learning curve has been phenomenal. They truly have just jumped in and said, teach us. We have this expertise. You have the expertise in what we are passionate about, but we need to both be together to do it. So I'm thrilled to be an advisor to Good Dog and to see them handling what you and I in our dog world call DQs, which is disqualifications in breeds, whether it is a coat color, whether it is other attributes, because it's important to breeders who are what I call preservation breeders. We're looking to keep to the breed standard. We're looking to do the right things for our breed. And we've worked hard. You and I have worked for too many years to count on the breeds we love. And that's so important. It is important. And Susan, what I think I'm going to do is bring Judy into the conversation. And Judy, I want you to speak If you could, we've made this beautiful segue. Well done, Susan. (laughs) I'm going to have Judy speak about specifically the dilute retriever policy, why it was created, and then Kat's going to come and talk to us about how it was created. So go, Judy, you're on. Yeah. So as with everything that we do, we do try to weigh the available evidence. And we did that when we were writing the Labrador coat color policy. So what we know is that the dilute colors were unknown in Labradors until the middle of the 20th century. So in the 50s and 60s, all of a sudden we found these silver labs and these dilute colors. And it's been proposed that that dilute gene was introduced by crossbreeding with a Weimaraner. That dilute gene is fixed in Weimaraners, so all Weimaraners have two copies of that recessive gene. I mean, it is possible the mutation occurred spontaneously in the Labrador, but it's unlikely because the gene is pretty rare in most breeds where it's known to exist. And combined with the fact that there was no evidence of dilute colors in the history of the breed until the 50s or 60s, just doesn't seem like it's all that likely. Therefore, most breeders of Labradors consider dilute retrievers or dilute labs to be crossbreds. We also know that the AKC will register these dilute colored labs under that base color as purebreds. So silvers will be registered as chocolate, charcoal as black, etc. And this is because AKC is a registry and they're not really assessing the purity of those dogs. Just if the parents were registered, they will register the offspring as purebreds. With the genetic testing companies, it's become a little bit more interesting lately because it's commonplace now in the last few years to do a lot of genetic testing, and that includes breed identification. So we know that the dilute colored labs will be identified as purebreds. And that's just really how the test has been developed. The identification testings are basically an algorithm. And so it's based on the data that you use as the reference. So if you get a bunch of Labrador retrievers or what we know as Labrador retrievers and you use their genetic background as the reference, then we'll see that these dilutes will come back as purebreds. With as many generations that have passed since what I call the original sin of that first introduction, (laughs) they will be identified as purebreds, but that's not necessarily evidence that there was not an infusion of genes back in the 60s. So when we take all this information together, what we've decided is to stand with and support the LRC and say that black, yellow, and chocolate are the only colors that Labradors come in and that that's what we wanted to preserve the breed and the breed standard as we know it. 
And so, yeah, we're working on these same sort of policies with a lot of our other breeds as well, because there's lots of other, you know, this controversy continues across breeds. So we're working through those. We recently just did a similar sort of policy with pugs and standing with the pug club, saying that only fawn and black are purebred pugs. Excellent. I think that is so valuable and so important. And it is the piece that I am most proud of Good Dog for doing. So kudos. <laughs> Kat, I would like you to speak a little bit to the process of how you are going about making these decisions. And I mean, Judy spoke to why, but I'd like you to speak to how and the importance of that to Good Dog. Sure. It's a great question. And I think how we do it is very much a reflection of everything that we do at Good Dog, which is seek out the experts. You and Susan mentioned this, we come from different backgrounds. Judy, we brought in as an expert because we knew we needed one full-time in-house. So when Susan saw us back in the day before we dived into things, that was pre-Judy at Good Dog. (laughs) We were searching for someone to come on and really help us tackle this challenge. And You know, we try to do it from an informed perspective and we look at the science, we look at the evidence, we speak to the experts and we take a thoughtful approach and we go one at a time and try and start with the biggest, most prevalent issues, the ones afflicting the most breeds. So actually we began this process with our Merle policy, which we published last year, in fact, and in that we do not allow for Merle dogs unless the Merle is an accepted part of the breed standard as defined by the parent clubs. And that obviously impacted a large number of breeds and is a really, really important problem with a lot of major serious health consequences attached to that. And then we moved on from there to the coat color in Labrador retrievers and our delivery retriever policy. We are now, as you moved on to the pug. And I actually have a draft French bulldog coat color and French bulldog policy to review. And we have just been so eager with all of these to reach out to the experts. And the experts are the preservationist breeders in each breed, the breeders who are members of their club on the health committees of the club. We're so fortunate to be able to speak to some of the members on those committees. And it's just so important for us to make sure that we're getting this right that we're standing behind exactly the message that each breed club wants and needs to promote in order to continue to preserve and protect the breeds. And I think for me, it's something that's been an enormous learning curve. And I can't believe the importance of it. And I can't overstate the importance of it. And I think it's something that so few members of the general public appreciate, the enormous need for preservationist breeders, the fact that America I mean, look at the numbers. America is obsessed with dogs. They're obsessed with breeds. They're definitely obsessed with Labrador retrievers. And so, I mean, the future of America having dogs and the future of America having breeds that we love and as we know them to be and healthy and able to serve the purpose that they were bred for, it's all dependent on those preservationist breeders. And so supporting them is our mission. It's making sure that we're getting that message out there. We're supporting the incredible efforts of you, of Susan Patterson, of every breeder like you, and really also holding you up to a gold standard isn't even high enough. You know, I think something that's also been an interesting thing for us to navigate is that we fundamentally stand for the right to breed dogs, which is why we allow for all dog breeders, because we believe that 
We don't believe. We know that the right to breed is under attack. You don't have to take my word for it. You can look at the overreaching legislation that is popping up all over. You can feel the anti-breeder sentiment that I used to know about and feel as part of the general public. And as long as dog breeders remain divided and don't unify, the AR extremists are going to continue winning. They already are. And we're all going to suffer. And it's something that, again, me as a previous member of the general public, I'm infuriated that this is happening and I'm infuriated at the injustice of it. But I think also what I've realized, what Good Dog and we know to be true is that we will only succeed by uniting. We will only be strong enough if we come together. So let's do that. But then let's educate and inform and be transparent. So let's make sure the public knows that, yes, there are a lot of different kinds of dog breeders on our site. And this is the difference. And this is why it matters to you. And this is why you should know whether you want to get a Labrador that's bred to standard or whether you want to get a Dilute Retriever, because that's really an important part of this. And then you can make an informed decision. So I think we're so fortunate to all of the experts and we're eager. If anyone is listening to this, if you are in a breed and I'm sure there are color or non-standard issues, please reach out to us. We'd love to work with you. We host roundtables with breeders. We really, really want to learn from you and want to get this right. Kat, I think you made a couple of really important points. And Susan, I know, can speak to this as well, because as preservation breeders, we tend to be skeptical, right? Like you and I had our rounds. I'm sure you and Susan had your rounds. <laughs> and I think it's very important for all breeders to understand that, as you said, the right to breed dogs is under threat. And there is room, there is no way that Susan and I and other preservation breeders can provide the 9 million replacement dogs that That's right. are sought every year by United States citizens. Can't do it. I think that people need to understand that many years ago, there were large breeding kennels. Yes. And they were really great. I have visited a number of them, and it is all about doing it the right way. You can do one litter really badly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I have helped people through that. And you can do one litter great, the same as you can do what you and I would call volume breeding. It is about the method, the protocol, all the procedures, and having help to do it because there is no shame in being a breeder. There really isn't. The ability to have a puppy for myself to compete with, and then I have five or six puppies that go to fabulous families. And I think that so much of the public, as you said, has been conditioned to, oh, they're a puppy mill. Well, Volume breeders really are not puppy mills if they do it right. And that's where good dog can come in. And I think their pairing and mentoring and teaching is so critical. And that's a part of what I've done in Facebook. I run a 17,000 member Facebook group on canine reproduction and neonatal issues. And we have over 250 vets who participate, including good dog partner Marty Greer. And the ability to have someone be there to mentor you when you get into trouble, to have the ability to reach out makes Good Dog a process that really feeds back into that. But going to the breeding and the ability to do it right, that's just so important because as Laura, you said, you and I are never 
you know, with my two or three litters a year at top, right, right. I, I live in my whelping box for eight weeks. You know, that's a lot mm-hmm. of time. I don't think the public understands just how much we have invested in our litters and in what we do. They have no idea the sacrifices breeders make, the financial, emotional, the lack of sleep, the amount of anxiety, stress, how hard it is, how sad it can be. And also, I mean, just to stop and think about the amount of joy that one puppy brings into this world, the number of human beings that dog interacts with and brings a smile to their face. And then they derivative go and are happier with someone else, let alone the joy for that family. I mean, multiplied by however many puppies you've produced, even as not high volume. And I mean, being a breeder is something that you should be enormously proud to be. And people should be thanking you for your contributions to society, for giving us these dogs that we're all obsessed with. (laughs) Well, and the other thing too, and that's so true, is service dogs. And Labrador retrievers are probably the number one, and I'm quoting this from the seat of my pants, the number one dog used in the service dog industry. So I had to qualify that statement. (laughs) But I have provided, personally, I have a dog with the Arlington EMC, the ambulance company here in Boston. And Willie is their therapy dog for not only the people who ride in non-emergency cases for transport, but for the office workers. An EMT is a stressful job and Willie does a great job. I have also provided dogs as L5 therapy and assist dogs. And I think that it is so important for people to understand that purposefully bred dogs, leader dogs for the blind. Yes. Oh, another yeah. great example. We have a webinar series with them going on right now, if anyone's interested. <laughs> and <laughs> a podcast. Yeah. Didn't we just do a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> I think they said like 80% of their dogs are labs. Yeah. And so getting back to the Labrador and their importance and their versatility and yes. why it's important to breed a good structurally sound lab. And the health, yeah. I'm just sitting here on the OFA website, and in 2016, they included a chick requirement, and chick is the Canine Health Information Center, and you now must have a D-locus DNA test, and that is for Duluth. I love that. Did the National Club just add that, Susan? Four years ago, they did. Nice. And the reason for that, just so people understand, is that one of the things that the D-locus or the dilute brings in is alopecia, which can be so awful for a dog, black hair follicular dysplasia, and color dilution alopecia, also called colored alopecia, but that's where your dog loses its hair. It has just awful skin problems. And, you know, we all know that dogs can have problems as it is. And so our goal as a preservation breeder of Labradors is not to bring something else. And that's critical. Our standards are Labrador Retriever community standards. So we breed specific standards for all of our breeds. We not only require the tests, but we require a negative result. So you can't actually even be a carrier of the Duluth gene in order to be considered a good dog Labrador Retriever breeder. And I think that's fabulous. And I think one of the sad parts is that so many people are not aware of the reason. It's not to exclude people who want to be breeders. It's to try to bring the breed and keep it in as healthy a category as we can 
I no more want to add dilute in my lines than I want to add merle. There are enough interesting things that show up in Labrador retrievers as it is without having something else that has been purposely accidentally added in. Mm -hmm. And that's my stance as a breeder who cares about how I breed and the puppies that I produce. Right. Okay. Well, ladies, I thank you very much. Everyone who was ever going to purchase a Labrador Retriever, thanks you very much. This has been wonderful. I appreciate your time. Susan, you are amazing. Kudos to you and good job to Good Dog because truly I think this is the type of thing that can really make a difference in the world of dogdom. Thank you both. Thank you, Lauren, Susan, and thank you to every breeder that has given us feedback and given us a chance and talked to us together. We really can do it, and we are going to not ever stop trying until we succeed. So we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Judy. Thank you very much. Thanks, thank you, Laura. Guys.